Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books channel. I'm delighted to be back today with Ben Nelson, the founder and CEO of the Minerva Project and Minerva University. Ben, uh, great to speak with you. Great to be back. Ben, um, you you did a great job when we first spoke of, of sort of giving people the origin story of Minerva and, and how the model um, ha- has grown and, and its success. I, I was wondering if you could say a little about, um, since you actually got it up and running with students, um, in what ways the, the educational delivery model, how, how has it evolved from the learnings that you've had? Were there things you tried that didn't work quite the way you hoped and, and new new innovations you've been able to introduce? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, and our, our goal is that despite the fact that the core of Minerva is in some ways immutable, we believe in the transference of knowledge, in wisdom being the center of education as opposed to the uh, dissemination of information, the ways about of going about that if we aren't evolving and changing, then we're 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 not we're not doing justice. Um, when we started, we were in some ways purists, right? In in that we just assumed that we should be, you know, doing uh, everything exactly as the science would dictate, right? So one of the things that uh, the science dictates when you when you try to teach transferable learning is that in context learning rarely and some would say never generates transferable knowledge right which means that if you teach elements of critical thinking within physics and then hope that people are able to apply that in biology let alone in history that that transference rarely occurs and so we in some ways took that to the extreme and we said okay well if our goal is to teach the skills as a subject matter the content becomes completely unimportant and and so in our first year we generated courses that had no coherent content whatsoever. I mean, you would show up one uh, one week and talk about Napoleon, and then the other week you talk about peacocks, right? And uh, and the the connection. I mean, it was basically whiplash, right? And you had to have some context in order to ground the conversation, but the context was always subordinated to the concept. And by saying, well, let's, uh, uh, let's create a, uh, this pure version. And it was 
way, way, way too much work. I mean, the students that I remember in the in our pilot year, our founding class slept something like 90 minutes a night on average for the first two weeks. I mean, they were, it was just brutal, right? And they couldn't, they couldn't handle it. And they were some of the smartest kids in the world, right? And so it, we we learned a lot, right? And so we created these theme areas and we 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 started thinking more and more about how to create these cross connections. And over the years, we've 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 seen that to really get transferable thinking working, you have to think about it in a multi-dimensional way. Right. So initially, even though we were creating a curriculum where you were applying concepts in different ways and the concepts were the subject areas, we still were largely providing them as depth of mastery, right? You know, we were much more nuanced than binary. Do you have this skill or do you not have this skill? We, we saw, well, you know, how nuanced are you? How profound is your understanding? But how and where you applied it, the breadth of application was very much in the background. It was there, but it was in the background. And over the years, what we realized is that breadth of application isn't the background. It's the only thing that really matters, right? If, if, if your depth of mastery is useful, but the difference between a, a very good to very, very good is practically irrelevant. Whereas the difference of very good understanding of a concept such that you can apply it in six versus 60 contexts is hugely important. And adding dimensionality to that context layer, making sure that learners are actually applying what they've learned and are doing so in in systematic ways has over the years and continues to shift into our focus and everything we've been doing around it, integrated learning, figuring out how to take what you've learned in class and not just assess it in a formal learning environment, but also in experiential learning with uh, with opportunities to do uh, offline, integrating into work opportunities and internships. There's so much that can be done to create a richer learning journey for the, for the student. And, and that, I think, writ large, has been uh, the biggest bucket of learning we've had over the years. There's been a lot of others, but that's probably the biggest one. And as you developed the model, obviously you were setting out to do something which on several different dimensions was pretty radically new. Were there any um, examples, places where you saw parts of what you were trying to do where you thought, we really want to include that in what we're doing at Minerva? Any existing examples that, that were able to influence your thinking? You know, the the sad reality is that practically everything we adopted from the extant turned out to be a disaster. Um, uh, I'll give you a simple example. Like, again, going back to that uh, first class, you know, we, we, we figured, you know, we were reinventing everything. So how do we do class scheduling? Well, you know, we'll do what every other university does. Ask the professor when they want to teach. Um and we did. And the professor said, oh, I want to teach here. And this is what's comfortable for my schedule. This is what I can do. It was a disaster, right? So on Mondays and Wednesdays, some students had like a five-hour break between their first and second class. And Tuesdays and Thursdays, they had 20 minutes. Uh, it was <laughs> They couldn't create a rhythm. Uh, some had to go right through lunch. It just didn't make any sense. 
right? And and so in the second semester, rather than asking our professors when they wanted to teach, we figured, well, when is the best time for our students to learn? And we created a schedule based on that. And all of a sudden, learning was better, students were happier, they were more engaged, right? So there were um, so there was a there was very little uh, that we could look at in the extent, and that's because it's a system, right? I'll, I'll give you an, an, an interesting example, um, which is quite controversial. But, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a major scandal that got remarkably little airtime, uh, I think, which was when it was discovered that for 18 years or so, the University of North Carolina uh, was creating fake classes to graduate what were effectively illiterate athletes. And, you know, the world was shocked, shocked that uh, that uh, academic standards were compromised for athletes where, you know, rocks for jocks and, you know, uh, 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 physics for poets. The, the lexicon was in our uh, 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 in, in our verbiage. I mean, we, we understood that this is the part of the rot of American higher education. All of a sudden, people were stunned. They're like, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe there's drinking happening at this establishment. Uh, and 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 I just didn't understand it. And in fact, I actually think that what UNC did was more ethical than what I would say Stanford does, right? Because what UNC did was to say, look, we kind of care about the academic quality of uh, our educational experience for most of our students. We have these students that we kind of need for the gladiatorial uh, roles that they play in our institution. We've We've accepted the fact that we uh, uh, generate brain damage for some portion of our students for the fun and entertainment and donors uh, of our of our system. We've made that choice. And you know what? We're going to carve out a parallel path. We're going to give them the same degree, but clearly they wouldn't meet the standards. And that sounds awful and crass, but at least it protects the broad enterprise of the university. What does Stanford do? Stanford, you know, you can't watch the Olympics without every other diver being a Stanford student or, you know, uh, uh, all the rest. I mean, it's completely irrational. There's no scenario where those students are at the same academic level as the non-professional athletes, simply because even if they were smart, they you cannot both be among the smartest human beings in the world and an Olympic level Diver, it is you can't be that talented, right? Um, in in both ways. So what Stanford does is rather than saying, "Well, you clearly shouldn't, you know, be you shouldn't be able to graduate with the same criteria as you know any other student," and you know we hold them up here and we'll create fake classes for you over there. What does Stanford do? They just obliterate quality for everybody. You can't get lower than a B minus at Stanford. It is impossible. Right. And so what, what, they, what they've done is corrupt the entire educational system because of their gladiatorial uh, mission. And so, and so when, when you ma- start making those types of decisions, 
right? And you say, look, I, I, I've got to make exceptions, right? Thurston Howell III has to be admitted and he's got to graduate, right? And I know he's got a double-digit IQ, but, you know, Grandpappy built the building. He, we've got to let him in, right? And you can't tell, you know, young Thurston that he can't take any class in the course catalog. So uh, I guess I can't issue Fs, right? Because on his best day, he's not going to be even close to the worst day of 60% of the other students, right? And, and, and because of that, there are knock-on effects. Your grading policies, the way your curriculum is structured, right? The degree requirements, the amount of time that you expect from students to devote to their studies as opposed to everything else. All of those decisions cascade. And when you shift the center of gravity of your purpose, when you say, no, 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 it's wisdom, I will graduate 100% of my students with the certification that they are indeed wise, all of a sudden, the knock-on effects of that are myriad, right? And, and all of a sudden, you have to look at it and say, you know what? Maybe I'm going to have an athletics program, but our students can't spend 60 hours a week in practice. That's, that's just, it's just not fair, right? It is going to be an amateur program, right? They're going to do it. They're going to, they're going to go to practice and enjoy and all the rest, but studies will have to come first. Right, and 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 there are all sorts of implications for uh, uh, for those decisions, and so it's very hard to kind of look at an extant and say, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." We'll just take that element because the reason that that element evolved that way is because of all those other factors that we reject. So, does that mean that the Minerva football team is having trouble competing? Well, the good news is that they're undefeated <laughs> and they always will be. <laughs> As is Chatham's. Exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> so um, one of the areas where I think you were well ahead of where most of U.S. higher ed went in the last 18 months was the idea of delivering real-time, synchronous, video-based seminars. Right. Um, obviously, that gave you a big leg up compared to many in dealing with the pandemic. But the fact that you were the most global university in the world must have posed its challenges. So how how did you all adapt to COVID and what lessons, things have you taken away from that that, that you'll be applying going forward? Yeah, it's, it's actually been a fascinating time because on the one hand, exactly as you said, people looked at it externally saying, oh, you guys must have planned COVID. I mean, uh, uh, you, you, were, you were ready uh, before anybody else. I mean, and it is true that None of our clients has changed. None of the grading policies changed. The delivery was exactly the same, right? We finished all of our classes. We started the next semester without any, oh my God, what do we do about our academics? So it was very smooth. Having said that, more than 90% of our students in any given semester are supposed to study in a country that is not their country of origin. And I don't know of any university that has that logistical problem, right? I mean, you know, in, in most universities, the majority of students can drive home right? Sometimes it's a long drive, but you can you can get there, right? I mean, there's not like giant bodies of water <laughs> that separate you from your house uh, that you can't drive around. So the, the reality was that from a logistical perspective, we had a, a nightmare to deal with uh, between flights getting canceled and visas and 
all of that stuff. And we deal with it to this day. Uh, uh, we still have uh, embassies that aren't uh, fully functional and, you know, getting people visas to get to their residence locations. The good news is, is that those students that had to go remote didn't have a degraded educational experience in their formal education. But that really wasn't the major learning. The interesting learning for us um, was it clarified in our minds the things that needed to be experiential, that needed to, you need to have physical presence, and those that didn't. And it made us realize that even though we were, you know, digital first, right? I mean, we were, we were doing all of our formal classes digitally. Even we were conservative when we thought about what the power of digital mediation is in some of the things that we did. So as an example, we uh, have a very interesting uh, commencement. And uh, in our commencement, we have more commencement speakers than we have graduating students. And nobody gives a commencement speech. In fact, we, we make our commencement speakers, if they want to give a speech, they record a one-sentence commencement speech that we stitch together uh, effectively as a tongue-in-cheek way to say commencement speeches really only be one sentence because that's really the only takeaway you get from it. But instead, they engage with students across three or four days of intense conversations, two and a half hour long conversations in small groups, half a dozen commencement speakers, half a dozen students or so, talking about a very complicated, often controversial subject in nuanced ways, in with real civil discourse. And that's a, uh, it's an, just an extraordinary level of interaction. Now, in our first graduation in 2019, we, of course, did this in person. We did it in, in a big conference setting, right? We had people come in. We had people fly in from various parts of the world. Uh, but it was a lot of Bay Area folks. And we did a three-day conference, right? And it was fun. And it was really interesting. It's also quite expensive. In 2020, we were planning to do version two, and then, of course, got canceled. So we moved it online. And the commencement speakers, the, the invited guests who were there in 2019 in the offline version and who came in 2020 to the online version said, oh, my God, the online version was so much better. The conversations were more in-depth. The quality of the discussion was better. The mediation was better. Uh, the um, the interactions were were better, right? And we realized, you know, there were elements of that graduation, like being able to have small group dinners or a reception. You really want to do that as much as you can in person. But the actual substantive conversation is better mediated in an environment that is more structured, right? And and it, it, it got us to realize that, and by the way, it had all sorts of other effects. Effect number one, we had, especially in the most recent version, we had a vastly more diverse uh, set of guests because you could get people from all walks of life, right, from all corners of the world, right, where flying in from Cape Town to San Francisco for a three-day conference isn't in the cards for that many people, but spending three days in Cape Town uh, actually engaging with our students is, right? And so you, you are, were able to get an even better set of commencement speakers 
what that just didn't have the logistics. Sometimes we you know come from nonprofit as opposed to for-profit areas that don't have the wherewithal to engage in that way. So we we realize that there are things that we can and should be doing that more takes advantage of digital mediation rather than just this assumption that we should default that offline interaction is superior blanket. Uh, and it and it will change our, our long-term approach. On the other hand, there were things that reinforced how important offline interactions are. So for example, there were cities that we couldn't go to because of the pandemic. We didn't go to Hyderabad. We didn't go to Buenos Aires. We didn't go to Taipei. And so we did kind of online programming for, you know, called to learn about the culture, learn about, you know, this and that. And, you know, it was nice, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even 5% of the value of being there. So it was clear that the idea of, oh yeah, I'm going to go and learn about culture as opposed to be resident in it, not no comparison. That makes total sense. Um, so you mentioned now you've had the two graduating classes. Three um, now. Three now. Yeah. Okay. So 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 what have what have the outcomes been for the students? What how many have gone on to grad school? What type of jobs are they going into? Yeah, the outcomes have been spectacular. I mean, we've been uh, very very pleased with 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 uh, what is what has happened. So. Um, broadly, the vast majority of our graduates go uh, into the work place. Uh, they, um, and, and it's in a large swath of um, graduate schools placements that a lot of students go to traditionally highly selective universities for. Most students don't come to Minerva for because, you know, if you think about what are the big feeders of graduate students uh, in the Ivy League, for example, it's law school, medical school, you know, in some regards, dentistry, veterinary medicine, etc. In much of the rest of the world, you study that as an undergraduate. So, and because 90% of our students are not American, if you really want to be a lawyer, if you really want to be a doctor, you probably aren't going to an American university first, right? And so, you know, we've had, you know, two or three students that have gone to law school. We've had two or three students go to medical school, but it's not a a, a major uh, uh, representation. Having said that, we have a lot of students who get PhDs relatively <laughs> because they're highly intellectual. They're very interested in that. We have some who do some master's programs in in, in the process. So um, about 13% of our graduates go into graduate school, um, which given the fact that almost nobody goes to medical or, or, or law school, you take that up, that's quite high. Uh, and the quality of programs they get into is phenomenal. I mean, so as an example, eight of our students across our first three classes applied for postgraduate positions at Harvard. All eight have been accepted. Um, I don't know of any institution that has that kind of hit rate. We have two students who are doing PhDs at Princeton, uh, and we've got a student doing a PhD in physics with a Nobel Prize winner at Berkeley. Uh, we've got students to do done master's degrees at uh, uh, Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, we have a uh, oh, half a dozen or more uh, doing computer science PhDs and top 25 programs uh, all over the world. So there's, there are, I mean, the, the graduate school placements have been phenomenal. Uh, and, uh, and in work, uh, it's, I think, even clearer, right, in the sense that 
uh, many of our students wind up getting into jobs that are two to five years post-graduation uh, because of what they've done. So as an example, in our first class, we had half a dozen students that were interested in going into finance, and not one of them went to work for an investment bank. They went to work directly for hedge funds or venture capital firms, which are usually years down the road uh, in, in that process. Our first student who went to investment bank in our second class uh, wound up going to Morgan Stanley, but was designated as one of their top 12 incoming students in their first ever rotation program, uh, which again is unprecedented. Uh, it was the first one they, they've done, but really an extraordinary accomplishment. Uh, I mean, I think Morgan Stanley takes hundreds, if not a thousand students that come in every year. Um, and so not only one of the world's top uh, investment banks, but to be designated in that sense. And it's not by coincidence. It's it's because you have learned systematic thinking, you've learned how to be wise, and you uh, have lived that experience as you've applied it in various parts of the world. How many have opted to go back to their home country versus to work in other places? You know, it's a very good question. Um, I don't really have a great statistic on that. Uh, I do know that a large, large portion, I think the majority of our students wind up not working in their home country. Having said that, many of our American students wind up working in America. Some will work abroad, right? But but broadly, the American students will get jobs in the United States. Um, uh, there is usually about you know, I think about half of our non-American students wind up working in the United States. Coming into the American university, you get uh, your option to work after you graduate. And so there's an element there. Um, but then we've got a lot of other clusters. I mean, we've got a bunch of students in London. We've got a lot of students in Berlin. Uh, we've got a good number of students in uh, uh, in uh, Tokyo, in Seoul, um, uh, and then just a smattering, uh, all over the world. So it's, um, uh, but, but then there are a number that go back. It's not an insignificant number. I'd probably say around a third, but I don't know the exact number. And, and given that, you know, joining a new enterprise like this, I would think would select high for risk takers. Were there many yeah. who opted to either start a company or a nonprofit? I would have guessed that that you might see a lot who were drawn to kind of more entrepreneurial. Oh yeah, absolutely. So we've had uh, two companies started by Minerva alums who have uh, gone through Y Combinator, which is the most selective. Uh, uh, in fact, both, I think they're the only ones that applied for Y Combinator and both were accepted, both got through. Um, I think one or 2% of all applicants get, get through in that process. One of them, uh, is now, I, I think, the highest funded biotech company in Latin America. Um, another one just did their Series A, and they're a um, kind of an e-commerce company. Uh, we've had another, oh, three or four companies started uh, that weren't the Y Combinator route, but just in, in, in other ways uh, from, uh, from students. And then we have a lot of students who've joined technology startups, uh, especially in education. We've had a lot of students that have been interested in ed tech. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and in terms of the graduation rates, um, I, I would imagine even with your very, very rigorous selection that this isn't for everyone. 
Correct. What what percent of those who started ha- have seen it through to the end? Yeah, we're we have a graduation rate of about eighty percent, and our goal was to have about eighty five, right? So we think that we'd be will will, and we we think that in the next couple of classes we'll be we'll be at that level. But it is important that our goal is not ninety five percent. You know, it is it is uh, we in, we purposefully want to ensure that our standards remain high. And unlike, you know, the only other highly selective university that has that kind of graduation rate is Caltech. They're about 82, 83%. Um, but Caltech is um, is a weeder school, right? I mean, you know, the, more in the more traditional sense. I actually, Caltech is one of the few, you know, traditional highly selective universities that I have a lot of respect for. They have extraordinarily high uh, academic standards. They issue Fs. They are very serious about what uh, what uh, uh, graduating uh, uh, means from from an institution like that. Um, but the approach of weeder classes has traditionally been, you know, we're going to make it hard, right? Uh, it, you're going to really have to, you know, uh, struggle to make it. And you know, are you really smart enough? That's not the issue that Minerva students have. Uh, we've screened them well enough to know they're smart enough, right? Anybody who can get into Minerva, especially in the past, you know, several classes, um, but after a couple of classes where we were kind of learning our, our way in, uh, anybody that, that, you know, was in the most recent class that graduated, that got in, could get out, right? But you needed to engage, you needed to do your homework on a regular basis. You need to show up to class. You need to work hard, right? And and that's the weeder, right? The weeder is, look, you know, uh, in fact, if I think about the majority of students that didn't make it at Minerva, they were the ones that were, you know, uh, too too smart for Minerva, you know, they, they were the ones that came in and said, oh, this is all, oh, I've, I've worked harder. Than, I, I know how to do this. Oh, you're teaching me, you know, right problem. I already know that stuff. I don't need you to teach me. And they almost all flunk out. <laughs> so um, so it's it, th- those, that attitude, um, fixed mindset, uh, kind of know-it-all, it just doesn't, it doesn't jive with our ethos. It doesn't, it doesn't work with our academic program. Well, I would also think that it would it demands quite a high degree of maturity to yeah. live like you do in a kind of campusless way in major global cities. And so not everyone coming straight from high school, right, ha- has that. They might Very have the intelligence so. and the work ethic, right? Very much so. We we especially again in our early couple of classes, uh, we underestimated the maturity that is that may have been necessary to, to thrive in a Minerva program. And we did get a few kind of uh, uh, swept through that. Uh, but we have tried very hard to overemphasize both the academic rigor and the maturity level. And we keep telling people, you are going to need to learn to cook before you get here or you will starve. There will there there is no alternative, right? Like we we're, we're not you know going to give you a meal. It's not going to happen, right? So that's um, it was important for us to to increasingly emphasize that because uh, students didn't know what they were getting into. And 
I would think another issue, I, I know you've done a tremendous amount, both with the, the low sticker price, but but what what has been the average cost of attendance for students? And, and is financial means, is that ever a reason why you're losing people? Or are you able to ensure that everyone who comes has a package that allows them to get through? We, we do our best, but it is very challenging. Uh, we charge $30,000 a year, roughly, uh, for tuition fees, room and board. Uh, and some of it we don't charge. It's just, you know, we don't have board. We don't have meals. But it's a budget for... for that, that's um, what you... Cost of attendance. That's the cost yeah. of attendance, exactly. And the... Uh, so it's a... You know, now a lot of private universities are, are, are breaking 80000 a year, right? And so... And, and that's a significant uh, uh, differential. Having said that... 80% of our students can't afford it. 72% of our students can't afford $20,000 a year, right? So it, it, it gives you a, a sense of just how socioeconomically diverse Minerva University students are. And despite the fact that we are completely need blind, obviously, as you see this, this uh, demographic profile of, of our students, and that we meet need as you see the demographic profile of these students, the reality is, is that a student still has to scramble. They've got to pay for their flight. They got to pay for their computer. They got to pay for their healthcare, right? They've got to, you know, there's there there are costs that are associated with being at Minerva that whether the, you know, whether we like it or not, are are going to be a burden on our our students. And sometimes, what happens is a student believes they can afford it, and we believe they can afford it, and they come and. We simply don't have the capacity. They don't have the capacity, and in fact, we just a few months ago started an uh, a student emergency fund, which we're fundraising for separately. We have a lot of money we need to fundraise for for our core scholarship program, uh, but we uh, we're also now begun to fundraise for an emergency fund, especially with COVID, where unexpected things happen, and sometimes students need a bridge. And, uh, and, uh, but it's a, it's a never ending challenge, uh, and, uh, it's an institution that is so committed to having any qualified student be able to afford to attend. Um, it's a, it's very difficult for us, uh, because we don't have alumni, uh, and I was going to say, you don't have a Thurston Howell the third, right? right. So, (laughs) so, so, so what does your donor base look like? Who's supporting these students and, and. How do you go about raising that funds every year? You know, it's uh, up until now. I will I will say that the our supporters two hundred one have been entrepreneurs. Uh, they have been individuals that have started uh, and created a, a, a substantial organizations that look at these students and have uh, said, "Yeah, we want to uh, support them." So, for example. Um, Reed Hastings, who's the founder of Netflix, uh, is is a big supporter of, of scholarships at Minerva. Um, uh, Zhang Yiming, who is the founder of ByteDance, who owns TikTok, uh, is a big supporter uh, of, of of students at Minerva. I mean, these are these are individuals that I think resonate with uh, with the, that kind of the creation idea. Um, it's not that. We would be delighted to raise money from anybody, um, but we've been extraordinarily fortunate to have uh, individuals that have uh, 
taken a, a, a passion about these these students. But even with that, we have to continuously uh, be on the hunt to raise more and more. And is that the main rate limiting step in terms of how many students you can take each year? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if uh, uh, if we would have if we would increase the amount of students that we take, we would uh, go bankrupt <laughs> immediately. Um, and and uh, and and it's 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 challenging for us because we have what we refer to as a high floor, no ceiling admissions policy, which means that. We accept a hundred percent of qualified students, right? We don't. We don't say, "Oh, we've now run out of room." So uh, the art of, and you know, I wish it was the level of art. It's certainly not a science uh, of of what we do every summer. Is we set the the new floor, and we have to basically kind of squint and look sideways and say, "Well, you know, with the momentum before we have a single application in, we have to look and say, well." given last year's trajectory and size and things like that, how much do we raise the standards of getting in such that we wind up with uh, 150 or so students, give or take, you know, 50, right? So somewhere between 100, 200 students that, that come in every year. Um, and, and that's challenging. And sometimes we raise it a little bit too much. Sometimes we don't raise it enough. And sometimes if you have a small class, sometimes you have a big class. But if we wouldn't do that, I mean, if we had the same standards for this class that we did back for our, our uh, initial class, we, we just wouldn't be able to afford it. And I'm curious, as you've looked at it, now that you have three classes and you have some wonderful proof points, have you considered anything like income share agreements where basically you could get future employers to prepay for students? Yeah, we, we've we've looked at it, um, and and we, we we may be experimenting with it. I mean, the the key for us is that the income share agreements, uh, you know, income share agreements work extraordinarily well when they're subsidized, right? So, for example, in the UK, where effectively colleges are on an income share basis, uh, the interest rate. The effective interest rate that a, a a UK citizen pays is like one or two percent, right? And those who are below the threshold, the you know, they're social workers, the artists, what have you, the British taxpayer pays their bill, right? Yep. And 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 that's a great way because it doesn't create a perverse incentive, right? For you know, for the computer scientists to say, I don't want any, anything to do with this. And for the artists to say, please, where do I sign up? Right. Well, I'll, I'll let you know, Ben, I helped write that policy and, oh. and I, I took a hell of a lot of arrows for it. <laughs> Amazing. Because, ironically, it was the left who opposed it. Really? Why is that? Yes. Because in the past, when I did my, my doctoral work over in Britain, right, only just over 10% were going to higher ed. Because it, the treasury paid everything. So they right. paid tuition, room, and board. And so they are like you. They were yeah. rationing slots because right. it was all. And so we said, if you expand the funding base and the people who are benefiting pay some, then, and we stole most of the idea from Australia, which had yeah. done it first. Um yeah. But so, yeah, so I that think that it's a very, very, very well. good way to, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that works very well. 
the the way that it's implemented usually in the United States, I think is unsustainable, right? Which is institution by institution, they don't get philanthropic capital, they get regular market rate capital. The successful students wind up paying outrageously high interest rates, right? To subsidize the ones that don't pay at all. And at some point, smart students will look at it and say, no, I'm not, why would I, I'll just go and get a bank loan and pay 5%, 6% rather than paying 12%, 13% in this income share thing. It's not worth it. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what I was thinking for you, given the quality of the students and whatnot, and, and the demand for this kind of talent mm-hmm. was if you said to, you know, a set of donors or employers, you know, we want you to pay this. They're, they're going to need to pay it back and some, not usurious int- interest rates. But also, this gives you the ability to forgive it if they come to you and work for three years, right? Right. It's a, like a small signing bonus, right? Yes, exactly. And it's a good idea. And, and I would love to explore it in more, in more depth. Absolutely. Um, one other path that we didn't mention, I was thinking that the students are probably incredibly qualified for it, but I'm not sure it would be of interest, is the competitive international fellowships. You know, Mm. when I applied for the roads, it was one of 20 I had on my list because I'd never been out to the U.S. So I hadn't had the experience. But but I wonder, is that something that some students have gone for now? There's, you know, the Schwartzman, the Gates. Yes. There's Knight Hennessy. That's right. So we have a Schwartzman fellow. Uh, That's true. I I forgot about that. I think they were the first ones that applied. Um, And I think... We had one student that applied for a Fulbright that was a finalist in China, um, but didn't get the Fulbright. But we don't have a lot that have, go- have gone in that. But that's kind of an interesting. Uh, I mean, in a way, you've yeah. given them the most right. intense four-year yeah, international exactly. fellowship anyone could design. So, yeah. So, exactly. so I'd love to ask you about some of the offshoots of Minerva, which I think part of the idea is so that you don't have to just spend all your time raising scholarships. Right. These are ways to generate some return to the investors and, and help fund the university. So the first is the licensing of the Minerva platform. Right. Can you talk about how that's evolved, how that's gone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so the university, despite it being a nonprofit, owns about 10% of the corporation, right? So it has a an interest, right? And its endowment is based on the success of, a, of the corporation, which is a, a, a part of the, uh, the, the long-term funding, hopefully, of the scholarship. So we don't have to raise money anymore uh, eight to 10 years from now. Uh, we do have to raise a bunch of money until then. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and so the, the, the way that the Minerva Project uh, operates is the Minerva Project, the corporation, effectively owns the intellectual property that was used to build Minerva University. So it owns uh, the platform, the technology. It owns the curricular structures and approach. Uh, it owns the actual content of the, of the curriculum. It owns the pedagogical methodologies, referred to as fully active learning, and this feedback system, um, which is kind of systematic formative feedback, which we, we've kind of uniquely developed. And... And so that package of intellectual property wrapped with the Minerva brand, which the corporation also owns, um, is then used in, uh, to, to leverage with other institutions that want to offer new and innovative educational programs that effectively elevate what they do. Uh, and so the way it works is 
if a if a university comes to us and says, "Hey, I've got an amazing you know bio program that I want to put online. Can I use Forum for that?" The answer is no. Um, you cannot do that. Um, if a university says, "I want to build the world's best bio program or biotech program," for example, and it has to be cross disciplinary and cutting edge, and it needs to look quite different than what I could be doing on my own. That's what you could use uh, uh, Minerva for, right? So we're fundamentally there not to do the same thing that universities currently do without us, right? You've got a, a thousand clones out there. You could go work for two with two you or Coursera or academic partnerships or any of these other uh, organizations uh, that will you know, usually bilk universities because they're very expensive, but they go and they you put their program online and then you you do that. We don't do that. We will work with the university to create brand new programs. Um, uh, and most of our programs have been at the undergraduate level, even though we've done some masters as well. But uh, entire new schools sometimes, sometimes reforming entire institutions with the Minerva philosophy, central... Uh, uh, ideas, uh, an intellectual taxonomy that uh, that is pervasive across whatever area that that a student may study, and then uh, a cross disciplinary approach to areas of study that is connected to their general education with a learning index that goes over time. And so, the Minerva Project works with universities all over the world to form these new and vastly more advanced uh, uh, degree programs. And that's that's kind of the, the central part of what the corporation does with other universities. And, and can you give a few examples of, of where that, that's up and running and, and what does the staffing for that look like on the Minerva side? So do you have a separate team from the university yes. that sort of embeds themselves with the partner? It, it, exactly right. So the Minerva Project has its own staff, its own team. It's got its own board of directors. It's got its own management structure. Uh, I'm actually the CEO of the Minerva Project. My chancellor role at Minerva University is more of an honorary title. I don't have anybody reporting to me at Minerva University. It has its own president and its own management structure. Um, and so in the Minerva Project, we've got really three teams that interact with uh, uh, with the, our partners. We have one team which actually helps structure the relationship and helps that partner with how to position it, how to explain it, how to think about uh, um, uh, the, the delivery of it. We have another team, which is the academic team that helps design it and helps train the professors on our partner side, gives them coaching, uh, pro provides constant refreshing and really success uh, for, for operating the program. And we've got the uh, technology team, the product team uh, that runs forum, the platform, and all the technology that enables a program to exist. What we don't do is we don't get in the way between the university and its students. So we don't we don't manage enrollment. We don't hire their teachers, right? If, if a university wants our help in recruiting faculty, we're happy to do that, but they will be working for the university, not for us, right? So the uh, we really are about building capacity with our partners, really about uh, enabling enabling that uh, that process. 
And what, what does the business model look like? You referenced some of the OPMs. Is, is it a rev share? Are they paying a, a fee to you to get this up and running? Is it an ongoing partnership? Yeah, it has really two components. One is more of a consultative design phase where we actually design the program uh, w- with the partner, but that has a, effectively a consulting uh, and design stage. Uh, and then ongoing, it really is a license for the technology and a support for the programs. And so it's not a revenue share. We, it's a If you look at it as a percentage of revenue, it's a very small percentage of, of tuition revenue. It's not, uh, you're not talking about 60, 70, 80% rev share as, as many of these OPMs are. Um, but it is, a, a, but it, again, it really is about building capacity and it doesn't get in the way of the university and its students. It doesn't get in the way of uh, uh, disenfranchising uh, the uh, uh, the faculty. It's about empowering them, right? And, uh, and about actually allowing them to achieve coherent outcomes and programs across course and across discipline. And is the Minerva name on it? So, you know, many of these OPMs, it's not, though they're doing the recruiting, right. it's not visible to the student. Right. And and for us, it's the opposite. We don't do the recruiting, but we're highly visible, right? So these are at the base level Minerva programs, but in some regards, universities will actually start Minerva schools Right. So, you know, for example, when I was at Penn, there was the Annenberg School of Communications. Uh, and that was because of a donation. But there's also an Annenberg School of Communication at USC. Uh, and, uh, and, and you will see some universities that actually operate uh, um, Minerva schools at uh, X university. And so, uh, but usually they are referred to as Minerva programs. And our partnerships are highly branded because. These institutions want to be uh, signaling to the uh, to the world and to their students that they're offering a Minerva program. And then, more recently, you branched out and you have Minerva Academy at the high school level. Can can you say how do, how does that partnership differ from what you've been doing with university partners? Right. So our high school offering, uh, which we refer to as the Minerva Baccalaureate or MBAC, M-B-A-C-C, uh, is uh, effectively a uh, an alternative curriculum to the international baccalaureate, British A level, Cambridge A level, or advanced placement kind of subject matter silo teach to the test. What we refer to really as an anti educational high school curriculum, right? And so it brings the same kind of approach. Uh, to uh, that Minerva uses at the university level to high school. So it's integrative, it's cross-disciplinary, it focuses on tools and concepts over uh, the idea of subject matter. It actually uses your math and science, history, English uh, subject matter to illustrate how to apply tools as opposed to having those subject matters have primacy and uh, and is develops really amazing metacognitive tools that don't require centralized tests to authorize. So you actually, once again, you empower the schools, you you, uh, coach and develop talent with the uh, teachers, and you empower them to actually render judgment because if a student on one learning objective will be assessed across four years by 20 different teachers and five different subjects, 
all of a sudden you have high fidelity uh, value in how well that student is doing, not only in depth of mastery, but in breadth of context. And so that approach is vastly better for the learner. It's vastly better for the teacher. It's vastly better for the school. It's actually much more efficient. Um, the big losers is the testing industrial complex, uh, which everybody hates except the testing industrial complex itself. Universities hate it uh, because we know that when somebody gets a five on an AP, they don't, they aren't ready to place out of Econ 101, but that's kind of stuck there. They know that the students who graduate with A levels or IBs aren't, don't, haven't learned what the universities expect them to. And so rather than trying to reinvent that wheel, we say, well, what is it the university actually need? Oh, I want systematic thinkers. Well, if you can produce systematic thinkers, let universities figure out how to teach them biology and chemistry, right? Uh, but but the but the key uh, uh, concepts, right, are are what these you know, students are graduate with, and and the, of course the irony is is that in the process they wind up actually understanding their AP level, quote unquote, college level biochemistry uh, physics vastly better than they would actually studying for the test. The difference between the high school implementation and the university is the university implications are custom to every part. And so there's that big consultative element up front. The high school program is a one program. And so uh, there is no consultative element, right? We'll help, you know, a, a school get set up on it, but it really is just a support and training for the teachers and a license for the students. So it's a it's a much simpler um, uh, process, and it's actually a subsidized, uh, it's foundation subsidized because it's a joint venture between Minerva Project and Minerva University in the sense that we, uh, it's not really a, an official joint venture. It's, it's, it's run by Minerva Project, but Minerva University is involved in issuing uh, credits, college-level credits for the program. And so that's a... Um, it's it's a much more efficient way for for student for for high schools to provide a much much better education for their students. And I was curious because if I would at least where I was reading about it, where you were partnered with Laurel Springs to deliver the the it sounded like the college credits you were delivering through that were more expensive than the year at Minerva. So it mentioned thirteen thousand versus ten thousand, and so it seemed a little paradoxical that. It would be more that way. Yeah, we we actually did a, a very short experiment with Laurel Springs uh, uh, last year, just during the pandemic, right. and it, it it didn't. And to your point, it didn't actually make that much uh, uh, that much sense for uh, uh, for our go forward partners. Uh, the uh, the college credits that come with the MBAC will cost the learner of uh, less than a thousand dollars. Uh, and 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 can literally get a year's worth of college, so it's a, it's an extraordinarily good deal. Um, can you say a little about the Urban Scholars Program with Paul Quinn College? That looked like a really interesting new development that you launched. Absolutely. So one of our uh, college programs that we're the most excited about uh, is the Urban Scholars Program with Paul Quinn. Uh, so Paul Quinn is a historically black college in in, in Texas. There. Uh, the only urban working college country, working college in the country, uh, which means that 100% of their students work. They, uh, Paul Quinn is led by Michael Sorrell, who's an extraordinary uh, leader, absolutely visionary president. And 
they have partnered with us to effectively create an honors program within Paul Quinn that also has this ability to, to uh, extend to this concept of, an, of, a, of the Urban Scholars Program, which helps students not only get kind of a deeply intense Minerva education, but also then apply it to solve major social issues through the lens of business, through actually working. So in incorporating the working college uh, concept for, for students while they go and, um, uh, and study. And so the, the core outcome of, of uh, the, the Urban Scholars Program is the ability for a student to spend 12 months in an intensive general education process and then spend the following 24 months really straight, um, both working and studying part-time. So they're actually making a living, getting two years paid work experience, and in a three-year period, effectively getting a bachelor's degree, which is it's it's a, a, a huge, huge innovation. And we hope will be one of many such co-op programs around the country, uh, because we do think that Paul Quinn is a pioneer that other universities should be uh, learning from. So Ben, just coming back to the example you gave from Stanford, even if they're taking their brightest students for the honors, given the rigor you've described of Minerva in four years without full-time jobs, yeah. how are you able to keep the quality standard, but, but do it in three with, with a job? It's a great, great question. So there are two ways in which you, uh, you amend the current uh, process. One way is there are no summers. So rather than taking four months off every year, you keep going, right? You have 12 months followed by 24 months. So effectively, you capture three semesters, even though you've only got rid of two, right? So 36 months versus eight semesters is actually more time than, uh, uh, than you would normally. So that's one lovely sleight of hand. Um, the second is that when you integrate work into the program, you get credit for work, right? So generating credit for applying what you learned in a work situation is one element and extending in, into a nine semester versus an eight semester program. You do those two, those two combinations, you get your 120 credit hours. Very cool. So you, you, and you have work a part time. Sorry, you work 20 right. hours a week. Yeah. Okay. You have a really unique now global perspective on, on the world's higher ed system. I, I'm curious, you know, I've had a chance through the podcast to interview a lot of the folks like Nathan Graw, others who are writing about the trends that are dis disrupting particularly U.S. higher education. I'm curious how you see the next decade or two unfolding in terms of what it means for the historic, the public universities or the, mm -hmm. the private colleges, um, which has been, you know, a remarkably stable sector for most of its history, right? It, it has, and uh, I don't believe it will continue to be. Um, I think that American higher education very much has its head in the sand, and uh, and and it can learn a, a, a great deal, for example, from the Australian higher education sector, which has consciously been dependent on international students for a long, long time and understands that. And 
it, it's it's remarkable because um, the you know it's kind of an interesting. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a small anecdote, but I'll, I'll explain why why it's relevant. Over the past you know dozen years or so, as I've been building Minerva, I had a fascinating uh, set of interactions with both Harvard and Stanford universities. And in the past 12 years, as much as I, you know, criticize the, the existing universities, I've actually grown a lot of respect for Harvard and I've lost a lot of respect for Stanford. And it, it was, it's been an interesting journey in the sense that when I started, I, I thought of, oh, you know, Harvard is old, it's always been there. And Stanford, oh, they're the upstart. Right, they, you know, they're doing new and cool things, and oh, like, you know, they're they're doing well. But as they I helped act- birth the industry you came out of, that's right. right. I mean, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, and and I was like, oh yeah, wow, you know, Stanford, like, that's cool. Um, and as I've actually been in this sector longer and longer, my interactions with Harvard revealed to me the ethos as to why. Harvard has been in its position for the past 380 years, right? Because there is nothing that Harvard does that isn't at a high level that they're that they are not upset about, right? They acknowledge there's a bunch of stuff that they're doing wrong, right? But they're not sanguine about it. They have a problem. One of their departments is not a top department and they've got a whole bunch of departments that aren't very good. They're unhappy about it. They, 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 they get together and they think, well, what do we do about it? How do we change? How do we move? How do we, you know, get better? And they're highly self-critical, right? They, they are constantly looking at themselves inwardly and saying, boy, we're, we don't do that well. We don't do this well. <laughs> and they're, they're, it's, it's almost like the Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. There's a lot of paranoia at Harvard. You go and you interact with Stanford, and it's you talk to them as if it's paradise on earth. Everything they do is great. Nothing to see here. No blemishes. Look, we're dusting the palms. It's a country club. Everything is fine. And we're Stanford. We're you know, like you know, we're we're awesome. But the reality is, is that like Harvard, in fact, more so than Harvard, there's a lot of bad stuff at Stanford. A ton. But there's no acknowledgement of it. There's no owning up to it. There's no, and the few people, and they're obviously individuals at Stanford, they're kind of rattling the cage. They're they're marginalized. So why is this relevant to your global question? I think the American higher education system writ large is kind of like Stanford, right? In the 19th century, 40 of the top 50 universities in the world were in Germany. And zero of the top 50 were in the United States, right? And so, and, and that's kind of like Stanford. Stanford didn't exist before 1891, right? And effectively, for global education, the American, United States didn't exist before, you know, 1890. <laughs> and in the 20th century, American higher education didn't just become ascendant. It became dominant, right? And it got to this view that, well, of course, we, you know, we're, we're the best because we're American higher education. And that kind of default assumption 
is extraordinarily dangerous, especially when you think that in the 19th century, American higher education was irrelevant, right? And so these things are not immutable. These institutions may be old, but their position is not secure. And my father is a structural biologist, a very prominent scientist, despite the fact that he's in his 80s. I remember he started going to conferences in mainland China in the late 1990s. And he would come back and we would talk about it and he would say, oh my God, what a load of garbage, right? I mean, just, just the worst. I mean, just the people presenting papers that are absolute nonsense and, you know, so ridiculous. And then, you know, he wouldn't be invited back in kind of the mid 2000 aughts and, and he would say, oh, you know, there's some, I, I went and there are a couple of things that I guess were like international standard, but you know, not nothing revelatory and still, you know, stuff that isn't that great. And by 2010, he said, huh, that's like pretty much everything I saw at the conference was, you know, passable at least. And some of the stuff was really good. And by 2015, he'd come back from these conferences and he'd say, this is the best research produced anywhere in the world, period. Right. And guess where higher education prestige traditionally comes from, from research. And this is a new world. If you look at those research rankings, that's what they rank. They rank research. These international institutions are on the ascent and it's not going to be long before they're going to translate that to say, yeah, we'll still have undergraduates, right? And they all, some already are. And that is going to create an existential problem, not just because it's sucking away international students, by the way, Chinese student applications down 15 plus percent in the United States this year versus, yeah. versus last, right? Um, but eventually, you're going to have a bunch of American students saying, why am I paying $80,000 for a degree which is not going to help me get a job that is not actually going to teach me how to think, right? And I mean, I've been, I was at a casual conversation th this past weekend where I overheard people talking about, you know, American kid from California, where should I send my my uh, uh, senior to, to, to college, wants to be an engineer? First reaction from a Yale graduate was, you should look at Waterloo. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is, you know, I spent a lot of time in China and India and studying the the the, the globalization of quality higher ed. Um, so there are a lot of long-term trends, but we also saw the impact that one president and uh, a shift in mindset of whether the U.S. was really, because, you know, we have great old institutions, but but the strength of U.S. higher ed was we got the most talented people from all over the world to come, right, right? and stay, and then and that really built the country. And and so when you turn that off, on top of the other pieces, right, it, it can be a real challenge. So I, I'm curious. You mentioned you're at more admiration from Harvard as you've gotten to know them better. One of the things that really caught me by surprise in the last year was, was their decision to sell what they had created with MIT, edX, yeah. um, that, that you don't often think of Harvard selling things off, right? M money is not typically an issue. And, you know, they, that was their bet that online was going to matter. 
to, to educate. So I'm curious what, what you made of that. Yeah, I, I made a lot of things out of that. I mean, first and foremost, I am stunned that uh, uh, Berkeley and uh, University of Texas and all the others that have contributed money to edX as a nonprofit have not sued the pants off of Harvard and MIT. Uh, I'm stunned because Harvard and MIT put in $30 million and got $400 million back. That's a spectacular return on investment, right, for a nonprofit venture. And meanwhile, the public universities in California and Texas put five, ten million dollars in a piece and got back zip. <laughs> um, that to me is uh, uh, astonishing. Uh, and uh, and craven in many ways, uh, and and I think that it's um, certainly if I were Harvard and MIT, I would have proactively divided all of the proceeds based on all of the donors that put it in, uh, and for any uh, non-institutional donors that had donated money, uh, checked in with those donors to make sure that the use of their allocated amount goes to the right. Uh, nonprofit cause, uh, and that's uh, that's a that, that's kind of one observation. Uh, second, though, is uh, look the reality is that the promise of putting up a lecture online and calling it a college learning environment was always absurd. Um, that's not education. That's the next evolution of textbooks, right? And, you know, it's not to say that textbooks aren't important. It's not to say that it's not a good idea to have a video-based, interactive, maybe even adaptive learning uh, information dissemination mechanism. But that's not the job of a university. And, and what edX, of course, became was not even that good of a textbook. It became an engine of finding a relatively wealthy adult learners that wanted to learn more and potentially pay money to learn. That's to use business. They're not an education company. They're a marketing company that seeks to disintermediate a university from its student base, right? What they want to do is get in between universities and their source of income, right? They want to be able to create a chokehold. And by the way, it's not just to you, it's to you, it's Coursera, it's all of the OPM. That market exists in order to constrict supply of lifeblood into institutions, such that if you do not, as an institution, pay them money, you go out of business. That is their business model. And at X, effectively, diminishes how much money Google gets out of that, right? And it replaces it with something that was built by two institutions. It was built by a lot of institutions, but it was owned by two institutions that will never have a problem of being disintermediated from their students. And so by selling edX to 2U, what Harvard and MIT have done is hasten the demise of the rest of American higher education. And, and that, um, and one day, 
hopefully not too late, universities will collectively wake up and realize that handing over 60% of your tuition, even 40% of your tuition, to an organization that will have at its fingertips the spigot as to whether or not you will get students enrolling to your institution um, is suicide. And if the if the university sector doesn't um, hasten to destroy that sector quickly, um, it's it's writing its own death sentence. And and it was unfortunately spurred by two of its leading quote unquote lights. And it's interesting you mentioned the, there are other sort of junior partners who who were left out of the deal, but the other that I thought I'm just not sure how they're dealing with this is the faculty no. who got involved in it, right? I mean, I can't imagine many of those folks thought, I'm giving my effort, my intellectual property, and it's going to be sold to a for-profit. Absolutely. And they are left holding the bag. Yeah. What What do you see as the role for others like Minerva, other new entrants? There's been a lot in the the certificate, the boot camp, the, the yeah. more very different educational philosophy, but but do you see because you reference you know China, Australia, others, other, but mostly almost in all of those countries, public universities, state backed, right? They're the principal competitors. But how significant a role do you see for for new entrants coming in the actual pr- provision of degrees? Yeah, you know, or or, or other qualifications. Yeah, so. Two very different camps. Um, I would hope that there would be other new entrants. Unfortunately, the history of them making an impact is very, very low, either because they start with lofty aspirations like Quest in Canada uh, and eventually are just aren't differentiated enough and run to the ground and shut down, or they they learn how to play the game so well that they just are undifferentiated from the incumbents, right? You think about uh, the University of Science Technology in Hong Kong or Nanyang Technology University in Singapore, both highly, highly respected institutions, both non-existent 30 years ago, um, but fundamentally the same, uh, cut from the same cloth as any traditional university. So no, don't really have an additive um uh, uh, offering for uh, for for the sector. So, I believe fundamentally that you need um, the anti Minervas of the world. You need other new institutions that look at what we do and say, "I disagree. I I have a different philosophy, and 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 I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to build a university that does." I don't know, a totally different approach. I don't know what that approach would be, but um, uh, you don't live in seven different cities. You live in farmland for four years, right? And you, you know, you, you work the, the, you, you work the, you know, um, um, uh, deep springs, springs, deep springs, right? Deep springs, the university, right? There's, there's a place for that. Higher education needs that voice. It needs that, uh, um, uh, that alternative, and it needs several of them, right, to push the comfort zone and boundaries of uh, of of the the sector. Unfortunately, they're too few and far between. Um, 
there is this other category, right, which is the boot camps, the short certificates, et cetera, for a quote unquote uh, uh, innovator uh, in the space. So I, I hate that term. Um, I, I look quite askance at most of those efforts. Uh, education, if we know anything about education, is that space deliberate practice is core, right? And the idea that you could wave a magic wand in six weeks, six months, nine months, get an education is absurd. And some of it is pure snake oil, right? I mean, like some of these things like Singularity University, I mean, just I mean, the fact that, I mean, they're, they're even violating California law by calling themselves a university. They should be shut down. I don't know why the regulator is having to after them. But, but that whole concept of come for us for a week and then go and affect the lives of a billion people, the only way you can affect a billion people after doing anything for a week is to ruin their lives. Um, you can't possibly be doing something good. And, 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 and that, like, get rich quick snake oil uh, a thing it does not have a role in education. Uh, now you know, do I do I want to learn how to I don't know do word processing or you know or use Excel or uh, get certified as a Microsoft uh, database administrator? Sure, right? I mean, but but that's. That's not an education, right? That's that you go and you learn a skill, and that's certifiable skills, right? You certify. That's been around for fifty years, right? That's not. There's nothing uh, uh, innovative about that. But an education takes time, and that's why we need deep innovators. Now, if if somebody were to say, "I don't want to be a university, but I'm going to go and spend three, four years doing something different," I'll give you forty-two is a good example of that. Right, 42 is a very serious, right, three-year effort at learning how to code with the hypothesis that you don't need a human being to learn how to code. You know, a computer can teach you. That's a perfectly legitimate point of view. It's a perfectly, it's got some evidence that it does work. And that's the kind of stuff that you do need, right? Like things that are that are thoughtful and considerate and and have evidence behind them that actually work as opposed to have marketing behind them that, that work. Yeah. And three others that I've had a chance to interview on the show that I think have all done a good job, not necessarily as scalable as what you've described, but the KGI where, where you had a chance to be incubated. Um, uh, Olin College of Engineering, which Absolutely. I think set out now, they got a $400 million gift, yeah. so that helps to, but, but to get it started. it's still important. And, and yeah. What Olin and KGI right. have done in both cases yeah. are great examples of new entrants that have actually changed the game of the conversation. Yeah. And I'm curious, have you had any interaction with Shai Rashef and University of the People? Because yeah. they're the other one that's, you know, in some ways as global as you in, in what they're doing. Oh, well, very much so. Um yeah, the University of the People, I mean, I, I knew, uh, I came across Shai when he was just started uh, the process. And so I haven't been following it very closely. Um, again, I think it's an important entrant. I am uh, I am skeptical. Uh, <laughs> color me skeptical. You know, <laughs> you know, think about KGI, you think about Olin, you think about Minerva, even Quest, right? Even ones that, that didn't necessarily work. Um, Deep Springs, 
you know, these are hefty, right? I mean, you, you, you go and you, you, you spend the, the, you know, time, there's interaction, there's standards, etc. When, you know, when I see like, oh, you go and you listen to some lectures and, you know, you check some boxes and then you get a degree, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Again, maybe they figured out a way to pull it off. But we also have this category of, of institution called the diploma mill, and we've got plenty of those, right? Uh, and so I, you know, a diploma mill that actually is not financially exploitative, at least is that's good, but I'm, I'm not a fan of a credential that doesn't, um, uh, doesn't stand for something. When you get an Olin degree or you get a KGI degree, you've learned something. Right, it's clear that you have uh, uh, that you've uh, that you've actually gone through a learning process, and that's you know by Minerva, that's obviously the the core of our of our value proposition. Yep. So I, I would love if if you would share a little. How do you spend your time these days, and how has that evolved over the course of Minerva? Well, it's quite a bit. Um, you know, when when I started Minerva. Um, it's actually in, in some ways it's come full circle. When I started Minerva, it was just myself. All all I did all day long was talk to people. <laughs> you know, I talked to the press. I talked to. I spoke at conferences. I interviewed people. And then, as we built the team, as we actually developed, started to execute, build the university, it was much more actually getting the university off the ground. And then, as the university launched. And so I've shifted from talking to the press and, you know, uh, uh, the external world, starting to talk a lot to parents. Then as we started educating students, I started spending a lot of time with the students, right? Talking to the learner and understanding what works and, you know, trying to shape that that whole experience. And then as the university uh, started exiting its incubation beginning two years ago, and as I stopped running it and handed over the reins uh, to others, I started shifting uh, who I interact with mostly to uh, partners, uh, and and starting to understand what their needs are and what 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 happens in that world. And now I find myself doing a lot more of the conferences and talking to the press, and uh, uh, and in some ways full circle in in that regard. But also spending quite a lot of time with with uh, some of our partners. And when you look on the whole journey from Minerva, what what is it that you're you're most proud of in what you've been able to achieve? Um, I'll tell you what I'm most proud of is that um, we never compromise. Uh, you know, if if you were to talk to me about what Minerva was, you know, ten and a half years ago, I'd describe to you Minerva ninety percent accuracy, and the ten percent that isn't accurate is just stuff like we talked about earlier. It's you know iterative. Um, We've never, we've only increased quality. We've, you know, we've, we, we started with the goal of being the world's best university at launch and then improving from that point of view. Um, when we go and partner with other institutions, our goal is to make them better. It's never to compromise. We never compromise our. Uh, our morals, we never compromise our ethos, we never compromise our brand, we never compromise the quality of education. And everything else is really a byproduct of that. And 
you took on a huge challenge to create the world's best university right from the word go with just yourself at the start. What do you think were the things that most prepared you to be successful in this leadership role coming into it? I'll, I'll tell you what, what, what I realized. Uh, um, it actually was uh, a few years in my first chief academic officer, about a year into his job, told me, you know, he said, you know, he spent decades at Harvard and then went to Stanford and came, came to Minerva from there. And, and he told me, you know, Ben, everything about um, what, what we're doing here is stuff that I could directly connect to the scientific literature. It's like, that's why I'm here. And I knew all of it, but I would never have been able to put it together. And the reason that I did was because I didn't know anything. That was actually the thing that allowed me to be successful. I simply didn't know. I didn't know how universities operated from, I mean, my interaction with universities was, I was a student at a university. I was, you know, that was our, um, that was the, uh, that was my, uh, my understanding. I was a little bit of a student of it, but uh, of the structure of universities, but not much. And it was that naivete, right? And the ability to ask stupid questions like, why is it that a professor can do whatever they want in class with no coordination on the curriculum or, or any larger educational goals for the student? Why is it that uh, universities don't issue Fs? Why is it that you know universities serve all of these different masters? That really was the big competitive advantage. I just didn't know anything. So, so no knowledge and asking <laughs> dumb questions is right. the, the the Ben Nelson recipe for CEO success. That that was uh, that was at least I don't know if it's a recipe for CEO success, but it was the recipe for founder success. <laughs> And and along that journey, what w- what was the biggest challenge that you faced that you had to overcome? Raising money, um, and by far, and 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 it really is in two categories, right? It was initially it was raising money, the first money in, when to go from idea to I'm going to go and make it happen. That that was eighteen months, uh, eighteen months of you know, with 16 months of zero success. <laughs> so it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, it was, I started, I got a little bit. It was, it was, I was 0 for 16 and then one for one or 0 for, I know, 100 or 200 and one for one. And that's the, the, the first thing making, you know, uh, it, and it's not even getting believers because I got some believers along the way, but they weren't actionable believers, <laughs> And and getting the first actionable believer was was a huge problem. And today, the biggest challenge is raising money for scholarships. Yeah. Uh, it, when when you go to somebody and say, um, "Hey, you know, do, do you believe in you know philanthropy or giving people?" I say, "Oh, yes, absolutely." And you know, do you believe that we all live in an interconnected world? Yeah, absolutely. And you say, "Oh, you know, would you like to support?" really, really smart, capable students, the first reaction is, why do I need to support smart students? They're going to be fine on their own. Because we generally have this bias to think that smart equals rich. And that's not where smart comes from. Sorry to say, sorry Sorry. to break it to all of our listeners. Your kids are not the most talented kids in the world. (laughs) Far from it. And, 
and and then you you even if you get past that level, you say, oh, okay, yeah, let me support the you know ones from my city or my state or my country, right? Or my pet little country over there that my grandparents came from. And we don't have a critical mass of any of those, right? We educate the top talent on the planet. And if you believe that we live in an interconnected world, that we can't hide, that we're in the mess that we're in today because we had systematic failures all over the world and, and that we, 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 we can't divorce ourselves from it, then, you know, having kind of that, that humanist perspective is, is crucial, but very few people have it. Uh, there are very, very few humanists and globalists left. We know the planet needs them in a huge way. Right. Ben, just as a final question, um, I'm curious if you're thinking about the, the next generation of Ben Nelsons and the, those examples you say we need of, of new creativity, not just higher ed, but, but educational startups, a- a- any words of advice you give them in thinking about how to approach, you know, making their own dream real? Yeah, absolutely. Um Stick purpose is is your guiding light. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, funded starter startup uh, founders, who, you know, I talk to them and and I say, well, why are you doing what you're doing? What's your thesis? And they'll say things like, oh, um, I want to make education shorter. Why? But what, what, what's I mean, who, what, what's the hurry? What, what's what's the actual cause? Are are you really talking about? You were in debt and you don't think people should be in debt? Okay, that's not shorter, right? That's not purpose, right? Understand what it is that you're actually trying to do, right? And this is where naivete helps because if you actually have a crystal clear purpose and you're not bogged down by the way things have to be or the way things are, now you can develop a solution which is transformative. But if you don't understand your purpose, you're going to be another shill. And there's, there's no point in even starting. Ben, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I, I wish you best of luck with your, uh, your trip to the Middle East. I, I hope travel goes well. And, uh, and good luck with uh, really look forward to seeing how Minerva continues to evolve. Thank you, David. Very much appreciate it.